players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Chancellor of the Annex, Ice Fan Quad, Xanthid Swarm, and many others battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Therabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Hello, and welcome to episode 90 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Hot Takes 2023. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternal glory to gain access. I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. All right. Before we get rolling here, shout out to Luke and Viceroy Burrito. Good luck out there, Viceroy Burrito, keeping those burritos in line. Uh, I didn't know they had their own country. I'm glad you're in charge of it. And I'm glad those two people have joined our Patreon since the last episode. Shout out to you all. Those people will get to know Brian Koval's personal address. So Patreon <laughs> listeners, if you're interested in that, make sure to join. That's true. I did get doxxed in the pre-show and you may be able to own my bed. Speaking of support, um, I do want to shout out Eminence real quick as one of our sponsors. We're going to do our ad read at the beginning here because, well, this episode might get heated, folks. I'm going to be very real with you. At least one of us is probably going to get canceled by the end of the episode, if not all three of us. So, are you interested in running a CEDH event or want your LGS to do so? Worried about the logistics of it? Fear not! Eminence Gaming Command Tower software has you covered. You can create and manage tournaments easily, and its unique tournament pairing system makes sure you don't get paired against the same people multiple times. If you're interested in checking it out, check out eminence.events for details. All right, let's go ahead and get into some hot takes here. So just for some context... We have each written a handful of hot takes, and we're going to rotate through reading them. We don't know what each other's hot takes are, so everything that you're going to hear here is just totally live responses to whatever bullshit we've come up with. I'm looking forward to this. You want to start us off, Phil? I will. So how about for this first one? Magic has passed its peak in terms of coverage and tournament availability. That's not a hot take. That's just the truth. Yeah, yes. Yeah, start kicking this off with a screeching cold take. But but I think I think you're right though. Um a lot of folks want the return to that, ourselves included. I think you just need to think on a different scale. Coverage is is Honorog now. If you're not subscribed to OnZD Patreon and you give a shit at all about tournament coverage, go give him some money for real. And tournament availability. There's lots of tournaments for me to play in. Uh, I live in a, a major metropolitan area. And I can travel to stuff, but that like the Star City circuit, the Grand Prix circuit, those don't exist anymore. So yeah, it it's hard to feel like you're moving towards something with a lot of what's being offered when there was many things you could move towards in the past. I think a lot of that actually has to do with the growth of Commander overtaking competitive magic. If you think reasonably about where the game is going, the room for competitive level magic and the companies that want to pay for that to be pushed just isn't there anymore. Let's let's not go too far down that path because I know some of our other takes are going to step on it, or at least speaking from my own angle. I do want to shout out the NRG series though. NRG just finished their 
year-long circuit where there was points, there was a leaderboard, there was coverage for every event. Shout out to them. Uh, it's Midwest-based, a little out of my range, but when they drift far enough east and to overlap with me, I did go to one of their events in Ohio. I can't get out to like Chicago and Minnesota and stuff, but shout out to NRG for doing it in the region that they that they affect. Yeah, so I wrote that take last week and then SCG let go a huge portion of their coverage team. And then it was like, oh, this is so much more real now. Last week it was funny, and this week it's like, uh. It's a changing of the, the guard, for sure. Brian, what's next? Legacy is fine, and they shouldn't make any changes. Okay, you're going to have to explain why you think it's fine. Because at the end of last episode, we were all like, ban multiple cards. So what's changed in the last week, sir? Well, it's last two weeks, actually. And it's that the data for initiative has shown that its win rate is actually decreasing. Delver, I mean, Delver has been the top deck forever, right? And something that we've talked about on this podcast is that when Delver wants to beat a deck, it can do so because it has these tools to find cards like Dragon's Rage Channeler or Brainstorm or Ponder to find Cyborg Bullets and also other really effective cards. So Delver has shifted and now it's starting to beat Initiative. And now you're seeing Initiative adapt to Delver as well. They're dropping the prison pieces. They're playing cards that are better in the long game. So we have a moving metagame and other decks are rising around it. Painter's gone up. We're seeing uh, some of the depth strategies start to come back a little bit. And I don't know. I think that opened up the room for combo. And that's why I did well in the showcase. I'm not trying to be like, oh, I did well. The format's fine. It's that we're seeing an evolution of the metagame. And that is a sign of a healthy format. It's just not two bulls locking horns or whatever expression you want to use here. Things are changing. And I think what the pauper format panel is doing right now of not just banning uh, the two top decks because people want them banned when the data says that it's actually fine. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that right now in Legacy. I have two responses to that. The first First is people are definitely adjusting. I recorded an initiative league today and I played against pyrotechnics twice. Just the the fury instant that doesn't have a 3-3 attached. Pyrokinesis, you mean? Oh yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. My bad. Pyrotechnics is the one where you discard and take damage. It's some shitty burn spell. Pyrokinesis, my bad. I played against Pyrokinesis twice in the league. I still beat both of those players, just saying, initiatives Krako, but people are adjusting to it. The other thing I want to say is I think that as we discussed in our last episode, it's not just the overwhelming win rate of initiative. It's what initiative locks out of the format. We're talking about Oko again. We're talking about Dreadhorde Arcanist again. It's like this, if you can't keep up with this hyper linear dumb thing, your deck is not viable. And should Legacy be a format with eight to 10 decks that can wiggle around and maybe have a chance against the initiative in Delver? Or should it be a deck with a format with 30 decks, any of which could win a tournament? Because there are lots of decks that have had success in Legacy's past that cannot beat the initiative, full stop, and never will. So I love current Legacy. Like, I, I was very clear about this last episode. I, I love Legacy right now. I do think it's pretty unhealthy. And we are seeing these decks just come so low to the ground in an attempt to keep up with the initiative. One underground sea splash like three snuff outs level of low. I don't know that some of the deck building is super healthy. It feels very warped to me and it feels like more things are getting pushed out. Like I, I love it. Like, I played some of the anti-initiative decks, and I thought it was fantastic and fun gameplay, but I think we are 
fully dialed in around like Delver and Initiative as top dogs in an unhealthy way. So I, I disagree with you. I, I keep my stance from two weeks ago. I've been registering a lot of subtleties lately. I have a counter argument to that, Phil, but it plays into one of my later hot takes. So I'm going to bite my tongue for now. But I w- honestly, I don't even think it's a two deck format. If you play in a lot of leagues or challenges or whatever, Painter is everywhere right now. I think calling it a two deck format is disingenuous with the volume that Painter sees right now. In my eyes, it's truly a three deck format. Yeah, that's fair. I tried to record Painter today and was once again kicked in the face with the fact that Chaos Defiler is not legal on Magic Online. Decided to push it back until it is. I have a Painter video dropping with some spicy tech. Uh, Scholar of New Horizons, which lets you rip a plus one plus one counter off a permanent or a, a counter off a permanent more accurately to tutor up a land. And I used that to recycle Urza Saga and uh, Fable of the Mirror Breaker triggers. It was definitely on the cute side of the line, but deck still slapped. Yeah, that's pretty good. Brian, hot take, go. Magic the Gathering needs standard as a pushed format to anchor organized play and card sales. I hate that I agree. I fucking agree. hate standard with every fiber of my being i hate formats that rotate that quickly but it was the core of a lot of competitive play standard was the reason that i had events that i could travel to every weekend and play like a legacy 1k or 5k at as a side event i miss standard being around even though i have no desire to play it myself right now Yep. I actually looked at the standard metagame the other day and Rafine was towards the top and I was like, Brian must love this right now. I don't even know what it is. I've never looked. I couldn't tell you a single deck in standard to save my life right now. For real. That's that's how much I play standard. And I'm with Phil on the begrudging acceptance of this point. I'm a reformed toxic legacy bro. Now I'm a less toxic legacy bro, I hope. But 2008, 2009, LOL standard, you dumb baby. Get out of here. Go home. Play with your ball or whatever go build the blocks that's not a man format you know all that stupid stuff that we used to say and i know some of our listeners probably still say it change yourselves by the way do better (laughs) many periods in my life i just wished for a world where standard didn't exist like who needs it forget that noise i don't want to do that i only ever play standard when it's part of an invitational tournament that i'm invited to and it's worth whatever expected value to just you know begrudgingly build the best deck and mostly learn how to play it but a finger on the monkey paw curls standard is dead and i think that feeds directly back into the competitive magic is on the way out point that we started off the episode with uh a supplemental hot take of this arena killed standard and it is slowly killing local game stores because the one place where you can play standard you can play it for free and at any point of the day it's very accessible you can play it on your phone and tcg player actually saw a collapse in itself in like 2017 uh when arena was at its height with like new spoilers coming out if i wasn't working like a teaching job right now and i was a full-time magic person there's enough really intriguing cards being printed that if i had an incentive to play standard like a huge financial incentive i might do it some of these like phyrexian cards that are being printed are cool as hell uh, like a lot of the mono white ones like the Aleshnorn and the dominus like totally are cool and i'm vibing with them i might do it if a scene existed but if it's dead. Yep. Nowhere to play. I was running FNMs as a TO in the era when every FNM had to be standard or draft. The goal was anytime you show up in a city, you could show up to any local game store anywhere in the world on Friday night. If you have a standard deck in your bag, you're covered either way. And then it was opened up to whatever format you want to run. And I know some people who were involved in that decision and 
uh, I believe it was the right one. I believe they believe it was the right one, and it might still be the right one because people would rather play modern almost all the time. But I mean, look where we are now. I don't know how to fix this, but there's a huge chunk missing from the anchor of how do we keep sets relevant? How do we keep things churning? How do we keep competitive magic dynamic? Phil, hot take. So I know a lot of people hate current legacy. The initiative coming to Magic Online has created the most interesting period of legacy in the last two years. Oh, it sounds like you agree that legacy is fine, Phil. I said interesting here, and I think current legacy is really fun. So what do you think? Is this like the most interesting period of legacy or am I full of shit and I just love casting things off ancient tomb? I think legacy is about something that it has not been about for a very long time. And I think that's cool. Whether it's healthy or not, we talked about that already. Listen to our last episode about the health of that. But I do think it's really cool that uh, cards like Pyrokinesis are in sideboards again. I said earlier, I've been registering a lot of subtleties, kind of the joke elemental. The other four are playable, even format staples, subtleties like LOL, this poor little guy. It's been an all-star for me lately. Uh, Just really cool deck building and cool incentives change around the fact that the format, it like True North is somewhere else somewhere that it hasn't been in a very long time. I agree with that. We talked in the last episode about Wild Nakatl and it being banned in Modern for a short period of time. Current Legacy feels like that. And I think it's okay when formats shift. You will upset a lot of people. Things are always going to change. We talk about this constantly on the podcast. Dress sucks. Get over it. Predict sucks. Times change. Adapt. And I think that's why you see, you know, the cream of the crop rise a lot. Why you see certain players win all the time is because they're willing to adapt and make those changes. I mentioned earlier in the episode that I played some initiative recently, and I was just looking for a list and pulled up one that did well in a recent tournament and noticed that Bob Wong was the pilot. Bob Wong's on a deck. It's probably the right deck to be playing because he cares about very little except winning tournaments. All right, my next hot take. As CDH grows, politicking or playing politics will mean less and less. Something said on Twitter often is, I just won't make a deal with you ever again. But at an Eminence gaming event, when you're facing three different strangers, you will never face those people again. You might not even remember that person. This small format ideology... Here, I said that word incorrectly, but you get the idea. It's not going to play as the format scales. And as CDH grows, I think you're going to see less politics overall. Oh, I think you're full of shit. <laughs> Got him, Phil. <laughs> Let's go. Okay. I agree with you that these, oh, you broke a deal, I'll never make a deal with you things, like, are, are not going to matter as CEDH events grow. But I think the politicking is going to be incredibly important. And I think the players who know how to run a table are going to have a huge leg up as that format grows. Like the people who know how to hum and haw at the right time, the people who know how to kind of redirect answers to other problems. I think that aspect of politicking is not going anywhere at all. Yeah, I agree with Phil more. Well, I agree with both of you. Because the definition of politicking is important here. If it's like, I'm going to be mad at you in some sort of way that will affect our long-term relationship as humans. uh, Like, yeah, I I don't care about that. I'll lie to you for a time twister. Like, uh, I am in that camp when we're in a tournament game. I'm not going to shoot that shot in like a Discord game that only four people will ever see and then start to get in a reputation as a liar uh, based on those stakes. But as far as like, hey, what can you do to deal with this? Uh, this is going to be a problem for all of us if it resolves. I I have this sort of interaction, but it's not enough. Can you late help me up here? All of that, I believe, is an essential core component to CEDH. On to the next one. Supplemental sets are great for legacy. If something breaks occasionally, that's what bands are for. Better to push too hard than to never shake it up. And part two of this point, the most negatively impacted 
set or the most negatively impacted format by commander sets is commander. Ooh, that second part is interesting. Yeah, I, I want to start with that second part. I think commander was the format boosted the most by supplemental products when the first wave came out. I think that first wave of precons really gathered a lot of interest in the format got a lot of people into it, kind of gave it the push in popularity that it needed. Now, though, I would totally agree that there's so many products being pushed on them, so many new possible commanders, so many things to build around that it's absolutely just overwhelming because the commander players need to care about all the cards being printed in such a huge capacity because like their format is massive. And I know when I sit down for a game of casual EDH, I have to read so many cards and I don't know, I... I don't know that all of the extra supplemental products aimed at them are a good thing for the, like, the power level of their format either. Commander is literally two or three times as powerful as when I first started playing that format. I want to step in here because I actually think that's the reason I even became interested in the format. When I was looking into getting into CDH as someone who casually played once a year with my friends, I wanted to find something broken to do. And the supplemental sets actually added a lot to that. So Mox Amber obviously came through standard, but the free to cast commander spells were things where I was like, oh, this is something you can build around. How can I build around this? And it turns out in the same set or near the same set, uh, Commander 2020, Rograk came out. I was like, okay, there's a free commander here. What can we do with this? And then I started researching lists. Without that, I don't know if I ever get back into CDH. And one of the things that they talk about is how there should be something for everyone. A format that large, there really should be something for everyone. It's not like a standard where combo doesn't exist or whatever but i think raising the power level is fine and it ultimately goes back to the rule zero conversations with phil what is your expectation when we sit down and play how about brian as long as we're all on the same page go nuts but i think it's less interesting when i bring my cdh deck and brian brought his level five deck or whatever uh you just have to set expectations my point that commander at large is negatively impacted. CEDH, obviously, the free spells, the Jessica's Wills, like Rograk, all those cards, great for CEDH, great for the high power level. But if you skew to the median commander experience, when I started playing commander, you had to really dig into what bulk rares were kicking around, like Symbiotic Worm. Oh, that's a cool one. And some cards randomly said each opponent when most cards said your opponent or an opponent back in the day because they weren't designed for multiplayer specifically but like you find like a kokusho who was actually so busted that he was banned for a while in edh because he said each opponent not target opponent you had to really pay attention to the words and now every commander set has some hyper efficient chungus at six to eight mana that's exactly better than every card that was printed before onslaught and i i just think that that is boring if you want to play something like Kakusho or Symbiotic Worm or like these bangers from the early day of the format, you're doing it as a throwback. You're doing it as an artistic expression, not because it's the correct card for your deck. So this is somewhat related. There's been a lot of Twitter, you know, discussion currently about Dranith Magistrate and commander players hating it. But it's something I read this week where it would be uh, much better if it was symmetrical. So that way there would be a deck building cost. But the way that they make cards now, this isn't even a commander thing. It's just an across the board thing. Those symmetrical effects like Lord of Atlantis, it's not all merfolk, it's just your merfolk. They sort of went away with that, and that's why Dranith isn't all players, but it's interesting to see that those CDH people arguing for the symmetry again. First of all, Dranith Magistrate did nothing wrong. Absolutely nothing wrong. 
That is a great designed magic card, and I will die on that fucking hill. There's a real hot I take. also love Draneth Magistrate, for what it's worth. Yeah, I think the card's fine. I think that is a card that self-polices itself to the appropriate table. You put Draneth Magistrate in a CEDH deck, everyone is there to fuck around and kill each other at the highest possible power level. Playing a powerful stacks card makes sense. You show up with Draneth Magistrate at a casual table, and it's like, oh, okay, that's going to get caught up in one of the 77 board wipes that this pod is collectively playing that card doesn't do anything it can definitely be a little bit annoying but why are you bringing a stack stack to your casual game of commander you know i i i don't think that card is in any capacity problematic in terms of power level in commander and if we want to get into the spirit of the format that's an entirely different cast to tie into brian's first point which was supplemental sets are great for legacy i'm going to just read one of my hot takes now since it's essentially the same thing your deck doesn't suck because of supplemental sets it just sucks and that's sort of just the truth if you're blaming supplemental sets it's probably because of you or your deck there's something that you could have done to change something yeah that's reasonable and that point that hot take brought to you by the person who said force and negation is a problem you've said on this cast many times like the preponderance of answers is bad for combo players it's bad for what you're specifically trying to do in the format and health concerns and look at you all this time later you're just like fuck it make it work adjust quit whining weirdos these cards exist no one's gonna ban force and negation no one's gonna ban endurance figure it out i mean yeah opinions can change there was a time period when Dreadhorde Arcanist was providing all that insane card advantage, where I was like, hey, Force Indigation could be the problem here, but instead they just removed the thing providing card advantage. That's uh, something that could crack again in the future, but we'll deal with that when the time comes. Great take. Phil, what do you got? Since we're kind of on this card balance kick right now, I'm going to skip around to one of my later ones. Despite some failures in terms of balance, magic card design is consistently improving and is far better than it used to be five or ten years ago. Yeah. Uh, I think, once again, if we look to the average or to the median rather than looking at Hogak or Ragavan or whatever, yeah, magic cards in general are better designed than they were five or ten years ago. I would hope so. I would hope everyone's getting better at their job over there. As the technology and experience increases, they they leverage that. I will say that they're designed better, but they're also way more wordy, which is something that people have pointed out over and over again. But there's just so much text on these cards now. Yeah, it's it's the questing beast problem. Do you actually know what the magic cards you frequently play against do? Do you actually know the exact text? Because like I can tell you with most of the magic cards from like the like World Wake Scars sort of era, like Innistrad era back when I first started, I, I knew everything all the cards did with very few exceptions now i frequently have to reread cards is this one a may do i have to do this which two keywords were on this i i will say i have to reread cards a lot more than i used to yep mark rosewater has been on record for quite some time now 10 15 years at least saying that the existential threat to magic is not power creep but complexity creep and last year uh I forget the exact statistic, but some shocking number of words on magic cards came out last year. It was like 10 or 12% of all words ever on a magic card came out last year. What the hell? The fact that one of the sets released last year had sagas at every rarity. It was the theme of the set, Kamigo and Neon Dynasty. Like Sagas just have a ton of words, and all those sagas flipped. Those were double-faced sagas. Uh, that's responsible for a lot of words, but but still. I trust that Wizards of the Coast, at least the Magic R&D folks, know what they're doing, and 
I believe we will see a correction at some point if this keeps spiraling. A new Mercadian mask block. Right. And that's kind of what we were saying a couple of years ago, because we had War of the Spark and Throne of Eldraine just like going insane for a while there. And then it's like Theros beyond death. Everyone take a break. Everyone take a breather. And like Kaldheim got a little weird again. They have been sort of ebbing and flowing. And I hope they jam their foot on the brake on at least the standard releases, simplify those a little bit. Uh, but we'll see where it goes. Like Phil, I'm going to skip one so I can get back to the point that we were talking about earlier. And this hot take is players that the community tends to idolize aren't savants. They're just people that put in the work, understanding metagame trends, testing cards to break the mirror, etc. So the example I want to use here is Juju Bean, who played Is It Delver Splash? Flashing black just for snuff out an underground sea, the example that Phil mentioned previously. That is finding a way to mold your deck to solve the problem. Is that necessarily an issue that this person was like smart enough to figure out that, hey, snuff out is a free answer to their five drop or their four drop or whatever that doesn't cost me any time. I'm able to deploy a threat. I'm able to push the advantage. It works with my expressive iterations. That just seems like someone who did the work, they found the missing piece and then they were rewarded for it when the time came. That's not like, oh, great. Now we have to deal with snuff out. That's a, you know, job well done, especially when like your deck could play Wasteland. You could stop stuff out, but your deck is choosing not to play Wasteland. Instead, you're playing Utility Lands. So that's something that Initiative could change to fight back eventually, but we're not at that point yet. Yeah, you kind of veered into a second point there, but the first one that the players who win aren't savants, like they aren't aliens, they aren't supernatural beings. They're just people who put in the work. And there are folks with some natural affinity for you know, navigating what a card game asks of them. They are also doing the work. And I remember uh, Steve Rubin, shortly after he won one of the Pro Tours, he won it with Green White Tokens, a deck that uh, he helped design, and then he took it through the, the Pro Tour. And I was hanging out with him like a week or two later, and he was just kind of like, I don't know, people keep asking me for sideboard guides and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know, this is what I do. <laughs> like, he did not have any more confidence than like you or me. And obviously he was an expert with the deck, uh, one of the best players that we had at the time. He was just like, yeah, this is what I do. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like nobody's a robot nobody's like has run 1 million simulations and is like this is 1000% the correct way to go uh, it's just yeah this works for me makes sense I don't know so I think I'm closer to agreeing with you than not I will say I think there is sort of a like natural skill set that is going to cause some people to grow much faster but i think for most of the people at the top it is just pure raw hard work sometimes distilled over a very short period other times acquired over just years and years and years of of practice and i think one of the things that was like one of my big level up moments in this like regard was like when i first got magic online and realized how much more magic i could play now that i had this program versus what i could just do at the LGS level of playing games once a week, being able to and having time to put in the hard work is going to make you one of those elite players if you stick to it for long enough. Oh, I'm up. Okay. Richard Garfield is a top 10 most influential nerd culture human of all time compared to George Lucas, Gene Roddenberry, Stan Lee, Tolkien, Lovecraft, fuck her, but JK Rowling, Gygax. Is Pokemon where it is now without Richard Garfield? And does Yu-Gi-Oh even exist? Because Yu-Gi-Oh! is an anime about a TCG, and Richard Garfield invented TCGs. Would 
how much of this would have happened and the trickle-down effects of Richard Garfield existing and doing what he did in the space that shaped nerd culture as we know it today. Ooh. I'm a little stumped here. I don't know if you can definitively say top 10 or whatever, but you have a really good argument here. I'll say that. I feel like if you asked me, is Richard Garfield one of the most top 10 influential nerds of all time? My answer would be no. Not nerds, because then you're talking about Marie Curie and Albert Einstein and scientists and medical. I said nerd culture humans specifically yeah even on nerd culture i think if you say top 10 my answer is no but if you butterfly effect this and say would you agree with that if i remove this person from the world then i then i think you'd have me because of like the ripples on other things i mean that's that that's what i mean yeah i think it also shares space with like video games like people might put like the creator of nintendo in there or whatever it, it can get crowded but i think garfield is certainly up there yeah i think you can butterfly effect a lot of this like do we we don't have garfield without gygax do we have gygax without tolkien uh, like there's a lot of butterfly effects in even just the examples i gave but i think if you really follow all the tendrils of richard garfield's fingers in nerd culture it's a lot more than you might think i think i think i reluctantly agree with you i i i will grant him a seat on the council uh, i i was going for mount rushmore like top four but i couldn't do it i think top 10 is a safe safety net to put him i think top 10 is reasonable i don't know that he cracks top five uh no i, I don't think so either as we are a podcast that probably caters largely to legacy format specialists here we go i think most format specialists would enjoy other formats and probably be good at them if they took the time to branch out of their comfort zone and actually learn the appeals of other formats big agree so many people are like, I really wish if Legacy would do this or that, when they should just play the formats that allow for those things to happen. You can do more than one thing. Right. I hate Wasteland. I hate Days. Try Modern. Uh, I, I hate that this is banned. I wish we could, gush, play Vintage. I don't know. Like, it's all out there. I'm sad that my deck from 2001 doesn't work anymore. It does in Commander. Put it together. You can have that experience or some simulation of it. Big agree on this one. I think there's one thing to be said about folks who just don't have time to do more than one thing because the appeal to legacy to me initially was I just can't keep up financially or intellectually or whatever with a standard and extended metagame that involves weekly or daily. I can circle back to legacy two months from now and mostly know what's going on. We're not mad at those people. Live your life. But the people who are, you know, throw back to Toxic Legacy Bro that I said earlier in the episode, the people are like, that's not real magic. There's no there's no hair on your balls playing that. Like, you know, fuck you. Shut up. Magic is cool in all the ways that it's played. And you'd probably enjoy some of them. Oh, yeah. Past Phil definitely was a bit of a culture snob. Like Legacy is the way to engage with magic. And I've branched out a lot more and I am better because of it. Yep, we've all had tastes of that in our lives my next uh, hot take plays into this people that play pre-modern are the equivalent to door-to-door salesmen i say that be and phil's laughing because he knows it's true ever I, I wouldn't say every single video but close to it there's somebody in the comment section will you play pre-modern you would really like this deck in pre-modern have you considered pre-modern for this Ooh, this deck exists in pre-modern but you lose these seven cards and gain these seven cards leave me alone if i wanted to play pre-modern it would be on my channel already quit commenting I, like i didn't sign up for this you're like go away no one wants you here that's it okay i agree with the the first 10 percent of the things that you said i i also get comments pretty regularly like hey i love this in pre-modern or uh this is tech in the pre-modern build would you consider it in legacy that's where my my agreement ends like those people are welcome 
to say those things. I'm not interested in the format. I played it once. It was a great time. But like we just talked about dovetailing the last point, I don't have time to play formats that I can't feature regularly on the channel or show up and win tournaments for or like whatever. It doesn't like feed the machine that I am keeping running here, but they, they do go out and and advocate for their format. That's for sure. Look, if you're going to be playing a grassroots format, you have to be passionate, right? That's Absolutely. the law. That's the law. I don't know if it's door to door salesmen or if it's like Green Party voters. Vote for Ralph Nader. Have you considered Ralph Nader? No, no, I haven't. Thank you. Jill Stein. Remember her? No, barely. Okay. My next one. Magic communities ranked in order of toxicity. Number one. Enfranchised casuals are the stone worst. Judges, number two. After that, mid and low level grinders. After that, high level grinders. And then at the bottom, minimum toxicity is true casuals. True casuals are just there to have a good time. So I believe that they're the bottom. I love true casuals. It's so rare that enfranchised players like us, like you listener, are listening to a legacy podcast. You're enfranchised. We are recording a legacy podcast. We're super enfranchised. When I'm active on Twitter, everyone who bothers to make a Twitter and engage in conversation is enfranchised. When you leave this bubble and go play with just people who are like, you're just flogging them and they're like, oh, that was a cool play. Nice, man. Love those people. The best. I've told this story on the podcast previously, I believe, but when I bought my car, the person that I did my test drive with recognized me from the magic store. And they're like, oh, who's your commander, dude? And I was just like, uh, yeah, I, I guess I could answer this. I technically own a commander deck. At the time, I didn't really play it. It was that one time a year with my friends, but that person was just so happy to talk about magic with anyone. Right. I was at a New Year's party. The host was like, Brian, uh, you're going to go full time, huh? And then like a random person nearby was like, oh, you're a magic YouTuber? We play magic. And it was just like, oh, cool. They they do that. It's just casual commander among the five or six people they know and didn't know that magic YouTube was really a thing. Certainly had never heard of me. And I love those people. I'm ready to get canceled. I I think we need to add a a worse category. I, I think we have to, as the very most toxic, we have to add magic redditors as number one, uh, not drawing on the legacy MTG specific portion but like free magic exists. And I think that is just like the pinnacle of magic toxicity. So I think that gets a number one slot. Okay, yeah, that's not a thing I engage with. And I think if we're talking about, and it's not a thing I would engage with, if you are a member of that community, you know, rethink your life, make better decisions, and uh, you're doing a bad job right now. I'm not afraid to say it. As far as communities you may interact with as a person with good intentions in the world, I think my list hits those. But yeah, if we're talking about like extremist cults with horrible views, uh, we can put them above enfranchised casuals, but barely. I'll, I'll fire off one. This is one I came up with on the spot that I should have written out earlier. I think mutate is the worst magic mechanic in the last five years. Okay, like, I think it's easy to agree with that when you say the last five years. What's, like, if you expand it back to just, like, worst mechanic ever, I don't even know if it cracks the top bottom 10, or top 10, however you want to look at it. There's so many terrible mechanics out there. Mutate is the worst mechanic in modern card design. How about that? Do you know what other mechanic came from the same set as Mutate? <laughs> I'll buy it. I'll buy it, 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 it was companion, <laughs> Phil. Oh, fuck. <laughs> All right. Okay. I might have forgot about that one in just kind of coming up with this on the fly. All right. Hot Roasted. take canceled. Roasted. Mutate fucking sucks, though. Okay, but we can peel this apart a little bit. Like, none of us are game designers. None of us have designs on being game designers. That's not really what we try to do. But I will say companion 
could have been cool. A lot of the, as they say internally, a lot of the knobs were turned in the wrong directions. Some of them were a little too good, obviously. Some of them were easier to turn on than they thought they were going to be. You got a sweet spot on a few of them. Like, I think Gigantha does create meaningful deck building restrictions while being an 8-mana 5-5 that you have access to. Uh, Umori has done nothing wrong. Lutri fucking rules. And if the knobs are turned right, Companion isn't a disaster. But I, I can hear what you're saying about Mutate and how weird it is to understand. Though I also don't think it's that hard to understand Mutate once you play with it even one time. Having it explained to you or read to you is like, what are you even saying? But when you take a physical magic card and put it on top or behind a different magic card and say, these have all the same abilities, but it's this one on top, I think that's pretty easy. All right, my next hot take. Magic has no authenticity programs for signatures or other rarities, and as a collector, when you look at other collectible areas like sports cards, baseballs, basketballs, whatever you're into, they all have some sort of thing where you can send your item out to be certified as an authentic signature. And I'm talking signature specifically because you can get your cards graded in Magic, but it's not quite the same thing. And when you go to resell, stores often just say it's damaged or whatever. But if there was some sort of authenticity, that could change. And Magic just doesn't have that. If this niche ever expands, it could actually be a really big problem for the you know collectible scene yeah i think that is a very specific thing like you did mention it's a, a niche and it's not a niche i care about like i'm a someone wrote on this card it's damaged kind of homie uh but i understand that i christopher rush was the first big one and homie died and he has a lot of great art iconic art in the magic space and uh his own daughter was actually busted in the the magic art group forging his signature uh, she's been managing his accounts and like selling his prints and stuff and uh she got kicked out because she was forging her dad's signature and if she can do it anyone can like I, I could see where that would be a concern as magic turns 40 or 50 and and more of these artists are gone to the world whether retired or or actually gone the year that christopher rush passed i was looking for japanese foil tormod scripts black red reanimator was on the rise and a trusted vendor that goes to a lot of large events messaged me they're like hey brian ifr are you interested and they sent me photos and it was just very clearly not christopher rush's signature so i mean that's one experience that i have but what if someone doesn't have that knowledge like i do and they just overspend for a forgery yeah that's tough so i agree with you that this is kind of a problem but i don't really feel like this is a major issue because if anyone wants to nerd out like you are like they're probably going to do the research required to know whether or not that's a genuine signature so like i agree that it's a point of oh maybe we should do something about this but i don't think it ever rises to the point of an actual issue because that need is so niche i guess my question is like i i'm not in these spaces uh you have the the whole baseball collection and stuff i guess i do have a couple posters in my basement i have like a, a mike tyson signed uh mike tyson punch out thing uh it's actually pretty dope. I have a couple like signature posters in my basement and they're all authenticated. Is there like a database of like, this is a Derek Jeter's signature and we have a million AI learning ways to verify it? Or is it just like a person who looks up some verified ones and compares it? Because couldn't they do that with magic cards if you really wanted to get it done? 
for example, with baseballs, there's a company, JSA. They put a little sticker on your item, so they would put it on the back of the baseball, so not where the signature is, and there's a unique number on there. And then they give you a piece of paper uh, stating its authenticity, and on the top of that has that number, it goes into a database. So if you tried to resell this, you can look it up and make sure that it's authentic, and collectibles that don't have this authenticity often sell for 50 to 60% of the value. Right. Yep, that does make sense. Uh, so I guess... Yes, it would be have to be big enough to get like a JSA equivalent for signatures in Magic. Correct. Like it's not something that exists right now, but if it ever were to expand like it does in sports cards, for example. Right. And I guess you could hire a like forensic expert who could confirm like, yes, Christopher Rush did this within the realm of, you know, research that is reasonable for me to conduct. But that doesn't mean anything like I could have wrote that for you when you go to sell it because there's no central agency regulating all of it. Correct. And what inspired me to put this down as a hot take was with sports cards, you can actually just open up in packs, sign cards. And I know for a fact that Wizards has looked at the sports card market because something that sports cards are doing in the early thousands was the uh, numbered cards like this is a one out of 10 or one out of 200 and serialized cumber serialized cards have become a popular thing within magic in the last year with a bunch of these uh I, I never know what to call them but the expedition type cards or whatever you want to call them uh so they're looking at sports cards for ways to create un unique magic cards and putting signed cards into packs is something they could theoretically look at in the next dozen years or whatever well they're already kind of doing that sort of thing with i i don't actually know what they're called but like the individual numbered super promo card things yeah that that's what we were just saying and yeah brian's talking about taking it to the next step of a actual human signed object in a booster pack which yeah is the thing that sports cards do sports cards are crazy man they put like pieces of jerseys into packs sometimes it's just like in among the cards and it's a giant hit my sponsor store for a long time who unfortunately decided to drop magic and focus only on sports collectibles that was their always their big market so i was around a lot of these conversations and the whales who were just in there every time i went in it was the same three guys just sitting at a table shredding thousands of dollars in packs who clearly worked on someone the magic 30 packs were actually inspired by uh, i don't know if it was exactly inspired but there's a equivalent with baseball cards there's gypsy queen which is it's a thousand dollars for a box and you get four packs but in those four packs, you get a guaranteed auto from like a top player. You might like Mike Trout, one of the best players of the last decade. Uh, but like you're guaranteed like a super all star hit out of those four packs where Magic 30 was just like, you might open up a dual land. Uh, so I think they fell a little flat there. Right. A dual land that you can't use in most places. OK, I have one more take as this episode wraps up. Magic is not a game anymore. It's a game engine. I'm playing Magic is not a defined statement in the same way that I'm playing Monopoly is. Compare it to the Unreal Engine used in video games. CEDH and Arena Draft have been as much in common as Fortnite and Final Fantasy VII. Throwbacks exist. Old school and pre-modern are like playing Unreal Tournament or Duke Nukem. This is not, you can't just say like, I'm going to spend the night gaming on the Unreal Engine and that mean fucking anything to anyone and saying I'm playing Magic or I play Magic has the same hit. It's a game engine. It's not a game. I can see it. I think it's closer to a game with the whole bunch of different rule sets. Like things that are built on like the Unreal Engine go just totally disparate ways in terms of mechanics. With Magic, all the individual pieces still basically do the same things no matter what format you're playing. So like I, I kind of see where you're coming from, but I don't know that I, I 
fully agree with it but we are like we're largely a legacy podcast right like so like we are largely splintering off i don't i don't know that you fully got me sold but i see your i see your logic i accept your counterpoint and you are correct yeah it it is closer like edh is closer to arena draft than arkham asylum is to PUBG. they're also just totally different experiences if you're like you want to come over and play magic with no context or like, we just met at a party. I play magic. You play magic. Let's hang out this Friday. Uh, you have as much information as you would if I invited you over to play video games. That that I, I do agree with. Okay. The point is refined, but magic is, I believe, closer to a game engine than it is to a game, even if it's not quite so extreme as some of the examples I originally provided. Since Brian mentioned it, Final Fantasy VII is worse than Final Fantasy X. Ooh. Are, are, are we doing this? Like, are we going down the Final Fantasy rabbit hole? Like, are we going to fight on air? Final Fantasy VII has the Tarantino movie, uh, why can't I think of it, the Royale with Cheese problem, where it was the first movie to do something, Pulp Fiction problem, where it was the first thing to do something, and then people put it on a fucking pedestal, where, like, when you go back and actually replay it, it's not as good as versions that came after but it did something unique at the time that people are like oh my god it blew my mind which is great i'm happy i enjoyed final fantasy 7 but 10 is just a much better game all right uh i mostly don't care about final fantasy but did you just say pulp fiction doesn't hold up i think it's just like not a great movie it was the first movie to do the end at the beginning and people just like attach (laughs) themselves to this we're we're gonna have like a get down mr president moment with bryant over here everyone's gonna be coming for him (laughs) yeah bryant managed to get both of us like i I'm not a huge video gamer. Uh, I don't know that I've spent appreciable time with Final Fantasy 7 or 10 to really fight about that, but I am a huge movie head and just coming after Pulp Fiction like that. Jesus, man, you don't want to have a podcast after this. Are you someone that pretends that you like Citizen Kane? No, Citizen, <laughs> I mean, Kane, Citizen sucks. Kane is fine. Uh, like it, it's it's just like an old movie. The the people who declare Citizen Kane the best movie, there's a, a poll that's done through a British magazine every 10 years. And those are the people who have said Citizen Kane is the number one movie ever. And that's why we have that floating around in our culture. And those people, it used to be a group of like 36 dudes in the 1940s who said that shit. And then it just this year, I think it was over 2000 people voted and they're from all over the world. And it's not just, you know, old white men voting anymore. And the list looks very different than it used to. So things are moving in the right direction for that. Citizen Kane starting to fall down the ranks. Anyway, Pulp Fiction rules, and uh, it did a lot of things. So did Reservoir Dogs. That doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean it doesn't hold up. I don't know. Pulp Fiction is great, although current, more enlightened Phil has some very big problems with a couple of specific scenes in that movie. Maybe aren't super acceptable in the modern political climate, but like, let's not turn this into an hour on Pulp Fiction. Getting back to the real point, Final Fantasy VII slaps. It's better than ten. Ten has that awful laughing scene, relatively boring boss fights, the Blitzball game, which is bullshit. Is and we the all best. know uh, it's not that good. And we all know of the Final Fantasies, Final Fantasy Tactics slaps harder than Final Fantasy VII. And Final Fantasy IX is also better than Final Fantasy VII. Nine is my least favorite. All right. Before we come to blows, next question. I believe the next one's actually me because you don't have another one listed. So I will say no one cares what you've done. It's just the truth. 
everyone cares about what you're doing or will do. It's really cool that I topated a Grand Prix 10 years ago that no one cares about. Like to me, that's cool. But ultimately, it doesn't mean anything. And what people care about is who's on the next great tech? Who's going to come up with the next good idea? Who should I follow for this information? Hard disagree. I care about those things that you are talking about. That is what I as an individual care about. Every time I'm asked to do a profile, it's, you know, what are your accomplishments? What are the things that you have done? Not what are the things you are doing right now, right? Like if we think back to like SCG profiles, it's always X number of top eights, this finish, yada, yada, yada. It has always been about past events in the magic community. I think there's a split here of who are we talking about? And is either group asking the right questions? As there are the folks that are like, that was a month ago. What's your sideboard guide now? And those are like the the YouTube generation content consumers. Then there's the like locals that are like, wow, you won that that Star City thing, didn't you? And I was like, yeah, that was like six or seven years ago at this point. I've done a lot since then. I have a successful YouTube channel. Are you interested? It's like, oh, wow. That Star City thing must have been cool. There, there are folks who are stuck in the past, and there are folks just hyperfixated on the future. And I think that a lot of the future folks that are hyperfixated are because they're trying to build themselves the past. Let's connect the circle here. And those people want your sideboard guide because you're successful in the past. They trust you now, and they want your cutting edge tech so they can be a person who has a successful past in the future. Reasonable take. Boom. There's one more. Bryant fired off. Your pet card isn't spicy. It's a wasted slot being carried by a strong core and you are losing percentage points. I put this one in here primarily for my own followers, but constantly I see what card would you cut from your sideboard for grape shot? I want to cut prismatic ending number four. What are you doing? No, don't put cute cards in your sideboard because you like them. It doesn't make any sense and it drives me insane. I think Bryant probably has a good point in here somewhere that is just like phrased kind of poorly because i think a lot of times the the cards that qualify as the cute card in the sideboard do serve a very real purpose but people have to ask themselves like is this good or am i playing this specifically to get my spice to get my idea out there so bryant for example what's the name of that like five mana green enchantment that makes like a i think it's a fractal token and it gets bigger paradox each time? zone paradox get in the zone, zone. so like there was a time where if you told me you were playing Paradox Zone in Legacy, I would have went like, oh, that's your pet card. And then there was a time where that was a very real Legacy card that was actively good because it like dodged Prismatic Ending and a lot of the other answers. And now it's probably back into the like, uh, you shouldn't be playing that mode. So I, I think if we rephrased this in, in some way where it's like you need to be evaluating whether your pet card is actually giving you the things you think it's giving you then I might be on board with what you're saying. I think that Phil's response turns it from a hot take into a moderate take, which is not the title of the episode. I think your take is completely level, and I think Bryant is in the spirit of the format here. I agree with both of you. Obviously, the level take I'll always agree with, but also like anytime I release a video, whether it's an established deck or a brew, but especially on the brews where I tried to maximize for something, even if I know it's not tier one, I have met the criteria that were given to me by the person who challenged me to do it. And the comments are always like, I played a version of this in 1997. I really miss blank. Like, oh, I wish you could have got a Morphling in here. Get out of here with a Morphling. Combat damage works different now. It's just a different card than it was. Or I released an accumulated knowledge video last week. The The brewer wanted to see draw go. That was the challenge. So I put zero cards that could only operate at sorcery speed in the deck. The whole 75 were just lands and instants. And 
accumulated knowledge was at the core of it. People had a lot of thoughts because accumulated knowledge is a, a, a card with a long history. And folks were like, oh, you didn't even play one intuition. I wish you could have gotten Isochron Scepter in here. It's just like those might be memories that you have, but those cards are bad. So no. And those those circle back to Brian's point where any one of those cards would have made the deck worse. All right. Do we have any final hot takes, magic related or not, to round out the episode? I don't think so. I think I am empty of heat. I am ice cool at this point. All out of spicy peppers. All right. I have to say something cooler than that to end the episode on. That's such a like depressing final <laughs> quote. Thank you all. <laughs> thank you all for listening i hope you've enjoyed come at us in the comments tag us on twitter or whatever feel free to fight us in a friendly and constructive way don't play pre-modern <laughs> what is happening your deck doesn't suck because of supplemental sex Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> phil please edit that editor phil we're gonna need some help